All right, guys, welcome back to the Buck Fever podcast. We've got a really good one in store for you today. Um, you've got me and Colby on the line from the Buck Fever side of things, and we have a great guest with us. We have Jordan Krakowski on the line. Jordan, how are you doing today? Pretty good. How are you guys? Oh, not bad at all. Um, doing good. I'll tell you what, these last two days with it uh, getting a little cooler in the morning just kind of gives you that itch that the bow opener is getting closer. I know we're going to get drilled with some hot weather at the end of the week, but it's given us two days of of feeling like things are getting there. Yeah, these mornings have really been feeling like it for sure. So for anybody who doesn't know, um, Jordan has built quite a, a reputation for being a, a big buck slayer and pretty much doing it basically exclusively from the ground. Um, and so obviously a lot of that has been accomplished in marshland, some water stuff. Um, so Jordan, I guess question right off the bat for you, um, of all the bucks that you've killed, it, it sounds like have all of them come from a, a pretty close distance yeah, I would say I think the furthest shot on a buck I've ever had um, was about ten or eleven yards. Oh wow! So what's the what's the closest? The closest was just over three. It was like three <laughs> and a half steps. <laughs> oh my god! What's the story on that one? Um, actually, that one was pretty crazy because I walked right past him in the morning and didn't know it. It was a blizzard. I think it was. It was like one of my few rut bucks. It was November 2nd or something, and I couldn't figure out where I wanted to sit, so I sat down, and the snow was really coming down. It's starting to get that gray light in the morning, and then I could see something move, but it's all white. Like, what the heck is that? Well, here I see it shake all the snow off, and it's a buck, and somehow I was set up within 20 yards of him, and uh, he looked like he was going to go the other way. So I just mouth grunted at him. He snapped his head and pretty much walked right in. So by the time I got the bow drop back, he was he was just about right nose to nose with me. So it was pretty quick, but it was pretty intense. I was afraid when he took off, he was going to run me over. He just missed me. <laughs> what made you hunt on a day like that? I pretty much hunt every day if possible, which is usually every day. But So just want to get out there? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Switz. No, just like you, you just even despite the blizzard, whatever, you just wanted to get out there and you're like, I'm just going to go give it a shot. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm really not a big morning honey, hunter at all, but uh, that time of year I will because you can catch stuff coming back to bed late. And I don't know if that's what that was in this scenario or not, but I mean, I pretty much only have weekends to hunt mornings because I rarely ever take off days for deer hunting so i knew i had to make my time count and it worked out yeah for sure yeah that's crazy shooting at just three steps um i've shot one on the ground before at like seven yards but not three steps was that like a coming right at you like a frontal right in the chest shot yeah pretty much um he he definitely heard me grunt. It was windy, too, but he heard me grunt, and I don't think he could quite pinpoint it, but he was walking right to where he heard it, and uh, 
you could see the lights in his eyes pretty good because right before I hit the release, he knew the gig was up, but it was too late. That has got to be some intense stuff, like face-to-face at three steps with, uh, I'm guessing, a pretty good one that was. So that's wild. <clears throat> yeah, it is It is something. It's hard to explain it, and I know a couple of my buddies have tried it over the years. Not even, you know, shooting a door or something that close is a totally different uh, adrenaline rush because it's like, holy crap, they are right here. <laughs> and you gotta, you, you have to be ready before they see you kind of thing, but it's pretty cool being that close to them when other guys are trying to make 80-yard shots, and it's like the opposite for me, so. Yeah, all right, so we've, uh, we've set, kind of set the stage here for more of what's to come in this, this uh, awesome ground hunting approach and how close you can actually get to some of these deer. It's, it, it's kind of mind-boggling. Well, let's back up. Let's uh, let's build up to how you got to like where you are now. Um, how did you originally get into hunting? Um, what were some of the initial ways in which you hunted deer? Because I'm sure you don't just jump right into this marsh type of hunting. Um, and how did that? How how has your hunting approach like evolved over time? So take us all the way back and like to where you are now. Then, sure. So no one in my family really was a hunter, and for whatever reason, I kind of. I got an interest in it one way or the other. My dad's friends from work were big into turkey hunting. So when I was 11, I said, I want to take hunter safety and go turkey hunting one year. And we did. And uh, I ended up shooting a Tom on the second day, but that was like, that was it. That was, that was what I was meant to do. I could feel it then. So it, it started with turkey hunting. And then eventually one of those guys that are my dad's buddies went up north to park falls every year for gun deer hunting and i convinced dad to take me along for that um i don't think he had as much fun as i did because like i said he wasn't a hunter but did that for a few years and between all the cold and seeing more wolves and deer and stuff i kind of i kind of lost interest pretty quick in it but i had been shooting bull for a while down at the local sporting goods shop. Um, they had a youth league, so I would go down there and shoot every Tuesday and Thursday, I think it was. And I really liked shooting the bull. So it ended up being, I want to try bull hunting. And a brother-in-law at the time took me up to his cabin by Plainfield. And that's actually where I shot my first deer. It was actually my first season of bow hunting too um and i that was really it took turkey hunting to a different level because turkey hunting is cool but the deer being a bigger animal and stuff it was definitely like i want to do this for sure um ended up kind of having a falling out with my ex-brother-in-law now so didn't really have anywhere to go and it ended up being that the big public marsh near Fond du Lac wasn't too far away from home. So dad would drop me off and say, don't get lost and don't kill yourself. I'll be back to pick you up at dark. <laughs> and there was many, many trial and error efforts in there. Um, I would get close to some deer, but I would never really get shots at them. And I got discouraged. 
watching TV hunting and stuff. It's like, man, they make it look so easy, and I can't can't even get a shot at a door or anything here. So I ended up going more towards duck and goose hunting for quite a while. So, oh, I want to say I was 19 or 20. I paddled out quite a ways into the marsh, and I was using a small willow island as, like, my backdrop to kind of hide in and hide my skiff in. And it was about a half hour before shooting light, and I hear all this ruckus sloshing in the water and stuff, and I didn't really think anything what it could be. And I heard a grunt and a snort wheeze. Well, here was still to this day one of the biggest bucks I've ever seen pushing a doe on this island. And it was like that instant it clicked, and I knew why I wasn't having success and why I wasn't seeing deer. It's like I got to be out here in this crap because they're not up by the field edges in the hardwoods. They're out here. And I put my duck decoys away that afternoon when I got home, and I haven't touched them since 14, 15 years later. No kidding. <laughs> so I kind of evolved then from that to uh, get more into the nasty stuff where I know other guys weren't going. So like I said, there's a lot of trial and error, but it started clicking now. Can I stop you? Up, up until this point, were you mainly like tree stand hunting, um, whether – on your yes. in the park falls land like going to permanent stands or maybe you're starting to venture into the marsh are you carrying a stand on your back and like mainly hunting from a tree stand up until this point yeah so that whole period from age 12 13 till 1920 um i had i had a climber and once i saw that buck on the island with the doe and kind of figured out spots I needed to be I really almost completely stopped using that stand because I figured that's great if I can see where they're going to come from but I gotta be where they're going to come from or I'm not going to get a shot while it's still light out sure so I know you've got plenty of experience then in this marshy environment and I'm kind of curious you know, for people like us who hunt in ag land, um, we kind of have a pretty good idea of how deer relate to bedding and food and water and all that stuff. So I'm curious on your end of things in the marsh, um, what are some of the similarities and differences then on how deer relate to those marshy areas? Yeah, so, I mean, some similarities, I guess, would be certain features are definitely wind driven as far as bedding um and it kind of depends on how the terrain lays out in the marsh anyways because if it's if it's a pretty open area it seems like they'll bed there on any wind but if it's thicker and kind of next down slow it really almost has to be the exact wrong wind for a hunter it seems like for the older bucks to be in there because if they can't smell you or hear you from ways before you're right in their face, they don't want to be there. Um, I mean, it's kind of the same. I've hunted some hill country stuff too and kind of how the points and stuff work like that. Those are wind driven. It's, it's kind of the same concept if you think about it. It's just points of hardwoods and a little bit higher ground going out into the marsh or an island or Sometimes there's dry spots out in the cattails that you can't really see on a map, but they're actually a little just high enough where if you lay it down, you wouldn't be wet. 
So are you hunting like bedding areas out there then? Because obviously there's no food plots or anything in the marsh. Yes. So I always kind of take into account uh, where the food is and where they're going to be going. But I don't necessarily have to be right next to it. If If the food is 500 yards away from the beds, I'll be usually within 100 yards of the beds. Especially... Within an hour of home, I would say the pressure is getting more and more every year. So the deer, I hate using the word nocturnal, but they really are uh, starting to move even later in the day. Uh, Something kind of cool about that, actually, I finally shot my first buck out of a tree stand last year. And I got to see how this all worked because I've heard them get out of their beds and stand there and cough and stuff like that. But last year I actually got to see it. I was, I think 68 yards from the actual bed and that buck stood up at about 5.15 and I didn't shoot him until I think 6.45 or almost seven o'clock. And that was, like I said, only 60 some yards away. So he, he was up and he's stretching his legs and it took him that long just to get that far. And I was still, over a mile from the parking lot. So what prompted you to get into a tree stand last year? You know, honestly, I don't know. <laughs> I've been, I bring it along enough because a lot of times if I get in a spot and can't, I scout my way in every time, but I like to have a stand with because I'll use it sometimes to make an observation set and kind of watch from the, the nosebleed seats and see where I got to be the next day. But I kind of saw how this area was laying out and with the wind and a light rain cover for noise, I figured I could probably get up about eight, 10 feet. So that's what I did and it worked. It was pretty cool. It was definitely not as intense as shooting one on the ground, but it was cool to actually see that process of them getting up from their bed and taking that long to get to me. Yeah, you always hear stories of those big ones just being so methodical and taking forever to to go 50, 75, 100 yards right before dark. So that's pretty neat getting to see that whole situation unfold. Do you um, find that there's various, like, levels of bedding into the marsh? Like, you know, sometimes in, like, egg country or hill country, um, some guys will talk about certain levels of bedding. Like, there's the does, then there's the young bucks, then there's, like, the biggest buck is is like the deepest in, um, or he's got the best spot. Do you see deer grouping up and bedding together, or is the biggest buck usually the furthest in there or have the best spot to himself? How does that kind of shake itself out? Yeah, it's pretty much all of that, and it's very area-dependent. So there's some spots where that herd is all in kind of the same one bedding area but they are still split up where the does and the fawns will kind of be up front maybe the year old bucks will be up there with them too and they kind of make a circle so they can all watch and smell from a different way and then as you get back further than the older class animals but what i see in the fight is that the the kingpin of the area has always got the best bedding spot in the area and it's always when you get in there, you look at it, it's like, yep, there's no way anything's sneaking in here on it. A lot of times there's a 
water on one side of it or just a nasty tangle to get through to get to the actual pad. Um, I've seen some where it's like, how the heck did they even get in here? But sure enough, that's where they were laying the whole time. And then uh, there's other spots where the, the bedding is more sporadic and you might only have one buck in that, I don't know, say 10 acre area. But if he's there, it's going to be the one you're after. So a, a lot of it comes down to spring scouting and looking around and trying to figure out and decipher. I mean, for every every time I'm right, I'm wrong the other nine times as far as guessing who's betting there and when they use it. But I would say the spring and early summer scouting is definitely crucial for figuring that stuff out. Do you often have to walk past other deer then to get back in there to like that you know the kingpin spot per se um or or have those deer filter past you like before the big guy comes um or are they kind of usually off on like their own trail off the main avenue um yeah so i've had both scenarios happen it is tough when all the deer are bedded in one area because, like you said, then you got to let the, the does funnel past you and then maybe the one- or two-year-old bucks funnel past and hunting on the ground with no cover other than maybe some little brush or willow or cattails. You, you pretty much have to be drawn back before you even know what it is if you can hear them because you have to be ready but then pops out a little spike and it's like, oh no, now I gotta sit here full draw till he goes past. But it's not always like that, I guess. Sometimes I'll get in and know that I'm gonna be getting in the deer any minute and then you hear a couple crash off. And I used to get pretty bothered by that, but the more I've done it, it's kind of like, well, I'll just keep pushing back. I'm already in here. My scent's already in here. So if I leave, the spot's going to be junk for a while anyways. I might as well hunt it. A lot of times when the, the deer up front run around or crash back, it gets the other deer on their feet. And then hour or two later, they kind of forget about it. And uh, But it gets them moving sooner sometimes. Unless they see or smell you, the gig is up. But if they just hear you or something, it seems like they will come back through there. Yeah, because they don't know if you're a, a different deer or, or just any other animal that's in there, right? Right. I would sure think that, I mean, I've seen it with trail cameras too. I've, you know, a coyote will run through the area at noon and deer will scramble and then they'll go back to bed an hour later and life carries on. Stuff like that happens all the time out there. If they smell you, I would think the gig is up, but still, like I said, you're already in there, so you might as well just sit and see what happens. Sure. Can you paint, and I know it's going to vary from, like, year to year, spot to spot, but can you paint, like, more of a picture of, like, what some of these cattail marches look like? Like, how tall are these cattails? Are they up over your head? Uh, what's it like walking in there? Are you, like, in pure water? Um, is there... Decent footing, always slipping around. Uh, paint a picture of how that, like a general cattail marsh scenario, kind of operates. 
Well, nine times out of ten, I'm led up to my waist by the end of the night. <laughs> but it it does kind of depend on the area. Some some marshes are just wetter than others. I know some where the the cattails are always submersed, and then I know some other ones where the cattails are dry, and you can walk through it and everything. But this time of year, uh, the cattails are probably I would say nine to twelve feet tall. So if you're walking down a trail to hang a camera somewhere or to scout or even early season hunting you're going in to hunt you pretty much cannot see where you're going you almost I mean now with onyx and stuff it really helps but you used to have to kind of look at a, a landmark somewhere off in the distance and get on a deer trail and take it out there and hope for the best and sometimes a trail would lead you to it and sometimes they spider web out and you're 500 yards north of where you're trying to get but it does make it tough um when the trails are wet and they're heavily used and muskrats and stuff get into them the middle of those trails will be up to your waist sometimes i poked through sometimes and never felt bottom uh i'd say the best thing to do is keep your feet on the cattails themselves kind of help hold you up but then it starts getting into a balancing act while you're trying to move forward and and then mud and then you usually fall once or twice and drop your bowl in the water or whatever so i mean along with that i usually don't bring much with me i usually have my bowl release rangefinder sometimes uh i always have binoculars maybe a water bottle or something but that's usually about it and then sometimes that walk through the cattails is only 20 yards, and then there's other spots I can think of where you got to do it for eight, nine, 900 yards to get to the little clump of bedding or whatnot that you want to sit. Sure. So I'm trying to picture that. And is it pretty difficult to be quiet? Like, do you need to move at a very, very slow pace? Or, like, obviously things like wind um, or weather conditions that are – you know, more nasty, it'd probably make it a lot easier for it to go faster, I'm, I'm guessing, but it's probably pretty difficult to be quiet if it's like dead calm out and, and no wind in those scenarios. Yep. It definitely is hard to be quiet. It's hard to be quiet early season when things are usually still pretty wet because you get the, the sloshing water sound and your boots, the suction in the mud. But with that, um, I think you can get away with quite a bit of sound because those cattails are so thick. I can yep. think of a lot of times where all of a sudden there's a deer or a critter right there. And it's like, how the heck did that thing sneak up on me? But the cattails are so dense. I think it does hold a lot of sound. But as you get closer to late October, November, and the cattails start dying, turning brown, they knock down, then they're about shoulder height. Then the cattails themselves are really loud. And I think you I think that sound carries a lot further, but I still don't think it's as bad as maybe walking on a ridge top or something where it's dry and the leaves are really crunchy because then there's definitely no height in that sound. Sure, sure. So I, you can, I think you can get away with more than you would think in the cattails, but still I usually make myself slow down or just stop for a minute when I'm getting to that last hundred yards or so because I know I need to slow down in general and I need to stop making more noise. 
Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, I gotta say, like this type of hunting, I feel like I'm sure when you started, you had to feel this way, and just anybody that's thinking about doing this, like you are going to be taking yourself out of your comfort zone like big time, right? Like, oh yeah, it doesn't sound like it's easy to do if you're gonna go do it one time, more or less, saying you're gonna commit like your full on style all year long to this thing. So like. What's in your makeup or your mentality or your personality that like keeps you coming back to this? Obviously you've had success and made it work, but like, it sounds like a lot of work and definitely out of the comfort zone. Like there's not a lot of people that are comfortable with having uh, waist high or chest high water every time they're going to go in for a spit. So like, what's your, what's your mentality? What's your makeup that um, helps you make this all work? Yeah, it's, it's something even you know taking someone new along or you know ah, it's not going to be that bad just follow me and they're like how much further are we doing this and oh we got 45 minutes of walking yet um <laughs> it is pretty intimidating so like i said early season you can't see where you're going uh on the way out you can't see what's going on and then you forgot about a sinkhole that uh you barely missed on the way out um I don't know if it's just because that's what got me into hunting or if it's just, I I mean, now I'm so used to it, I don't even think twice. I'll go to a new spot I've never been to and have my, I'm notorious for my phone dying. So a lot of times I get to a spot, I, don't, I have no clue where I am. I just know I got to get out to here and I get there and then it's 10 o'clock at night and I'm trying to get back out and it's, well, the moon's up, so I guess I'll follow that for a while. But <laughs> yeah, I I don't know, I don't know what brings me back because I know there's definitely uh, more user friendly terrain than it, but there's something about it where where it always brings me back. I mean, the competition from other hunters really isn't that bad either. It's starting to get more with. Um, YouTube videos and stuff, which is fine, get more people into hunting and stuff, but there still aren't very many guys that will say, well, I'm going to go walk in cattails for the next hour. Yeah, I was going to say, you can't be, uh, have uh, too many people lined up competition no. back to some of these spots, so at least you got them pretty much to yourself most of the time. Yeah, getting the deer out is usually the, that's the make it or break it thing. A couple of years ago, I shot when I shot that really big one, um, we had two guys come and help me. And it took us about four and a half, five hours to get to the truck. And I said, thanks, I'll call you next year. If it, nope, you don't have to call me again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that was on our, our docket for some questions later. Like, what is it like typically getting a deer out of there? Are there any tricks of the trade to, to make that easier? Or is it just kind of always a grueling process? Yeah, as many things as I've tried, there's really not much that helps. Tried sleds, which kind of work and kind of don't. Um, you try two guys pulling, you got a guy on each antler and dragging. I tried. I tried once carrying one over my shoulders, and that didn't go well at all. So that idea was botched pretty quick. But honestly, I think what works the best would be 
especially if there's two guys dragging, would be to go ahead and kind of flatten down the cattails. You're using using the deer trail as your main way out, but then each of you take a side of the trail and kind of flatten the cattails for 100 yards. Go back, grab the deer, drag them to that mark, and just keep repeating that. That way you don't have to walk through all the standing cattails while you're already trying to fold. 200 pound deer soaking mud in the cavity full of water too so i don't know i always talk about it'd be a lot easier to just um you know quarter one and pack it out which it really would but i gotta know what they weighed i don't care how bad it's gonna be i just want to know what they weighed for whatever dumb reason but one of these years i'll listen to my brain and pack it out instead that's kind of what I was thinking there as you were talking. Like, what if you just packed the thing out like an elk? But I, I figured there was some reason why you didn't want to get into that. The thing with it, too, it's kind of, I think it's kind of a silly rule. In Wisconsin, anyways, you have to bring all the bones with you, too. So you're still bringing, you're bringing the rib cage and everything with, even if you got all the meat off. I think it's it's pretty silly, but. It would still be easier, I guess, than dragging, but I don't know. The The more people help, the merrier, I would say. That's what I would suggest. Give anyone you can and try bribing them with beer or something. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like you might have to make some new friends every year just to get a new crop of people who have never done it before and don't know any better. It, it depends on where I am. I'll... I'll pretty much hunt anywhere within an hour and a half, two hours of home, even on a, a night, work night. But we got a pretty good group here right in town, the group of us that hang out. So. so I'm curious here, with your mobile ground hunting techniques here, what are some of the advantages that that gives you versus somebody who is maybe used to just hunting out of a tree stand? Sure. Um, well, it's got advantages and disadvantages, obviously, but right. advantages, I think you can be like stealth mode can't really get any better than that because especially if you don't bring a lot of stuff with you, you got nothing to make noise. You don't have extra weight you're carrying. Um, you don't have the extra stuff hitting on branches and whatnot as you're walking in and just keeping everything really minimal. You can really, really tiptoe in very tight a lot of times disadvantages would be what i saw last year is you can't actually physically see the deer coming um you can usually hear them when they're within 40 50 yards but a lot of times in the public swamps and marshes around fond du lac area within an hour i would say um it's really hard to be in a tree even if you can get a stand in that last tree on the edge of the marsh it's really hard to be in the game yet while you're set up there as far as one of the mature bucks because usually by the time they get there it's too late it's too dark you might see them yet but if you see him and can't shoot him he knows you were there and he's on the next spot now anyways so i think with with the ground thing, you can just kind of go in. You don't have to worry about any gear. You've got your bow, and that's pretty much all. It's not always very comfortable, but it definitely works. 
yeah, it, it seems to work for you uh, pretty well. Um, so how do you manage to get shots off when you're hunting from the ground in these cattails that are nine feet tall? You know, like how, how do you get an arrow through all of that? So usually if I'm hunting on a trail, I will be just a couple feet off the trail and you're pretty much shooting through a couple cattails into right into the deer. Um, or if I'm on the edge of where like the hardwoods goes down the brush and then the brush kind of starts getting into the sawgrass cattail mix, it opens up a little bit. You can, you can get a 15, 20 yard shot into that a lot of times. Um, or sometimes you just got to be right where they're going to come out. But like I said before, you almost have, you have to be drawn back before you even see the animal a lot of times because by the time you see them, they automatically know something's out of place right where you are. Yeah, so I'd imagine you've uh, experienced some pretty long, like, holding your jaw before, whether it's... Yep an animal you wanted to shoot or just oh crap it's not the one yet i gotta let this one get by or get through and you just gotta hold the jaw because you or hold your jaw because you can't you know let the gig be up and have that deer go run back um and yep. that's the one that you want to come so what's the longest you think you've ever had to hold for oh boy i would say one was probably close to three minutes if i went back and looked at the gopro footage but that was that was probably 2014, 2015, and that was actually one of the reasons I switched to a recurve after that, so I could just I could be holding it ready, but I wouldn't have to hold it back. I could just be able to, you know, pluck the pluck the arrow if I had to. But and I did that for quite a few years. I still take it out. Uh, last year I shot that doe with it, but I lost a booner for sure with my recurve in 2016 and it was a one long hit i don't i still don't know what happened i i looked for like 10 days for that thing but i got a little ptsd from that so i still can't get myself to bring it out it, that's really the ideal weapon to use in cattails on the ground but i just i just suffer again and hold back <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to switch gears on us a little bit. Um, I'm going to switch us and talk about scouting. I'm assuming scouting is probably the most important factor into um, your success. Or at least that's what I'm guessing based on how much time you spent um, in the woods driving around um, preseason, postseason, all that stuff. So I'm going to start with like, when it comes to scouting a property you've already hunted like previously, what are some things you're doing to dive deeper or learn even more about that property from year to year? Okay. I would definitely, scouting is definitely more important than the hunt itself. I'll start with that because that's where you learn everything. I tell people deer hunting is 365 for me a year and it really is. I've skipped some things I shouldn't have. I've uh, lost some girlfriends over it, but at the end of the day, it's my thing. So that's what I do. When it comes to an area I'm familiar with, I will always check known bedding areas. And then I try to relate that with 
hunting experiences like hey something came from this way once or it went that way and i don't know why so i'll go in there and check it out and even if it's a bedding area i know i'm really good i'll still walk it every year that january through april period because things change over time um the marshes especially not so much like the cedar swamps with the marshes all the ash trees are pretty much gone now and those used to be all the the major bedding points and they're not there there's no shade or extra security cover for the deer there anymore and they have moved on and adapted so it never stops changing it might not be far off but i'll still walk where those uh ash trees were and then okay there's some red brush 100 yards over opposite direction while walking there and sure enough that's where they've been all year you can see all the beds and where they were chewing on all the stuff all fall and checking rub lines and stuff like that i mean some rub lines you can tell if a certain buck was using it just by the height and certain gouges in it if they got some extra points and uh, other things like that but Heading area with them, I was checking what I know and then checking the unknown around it. Even if it doesn't look like it's anything, I'll, I usually still try try walking in there just to see. And a lot of times there will be something that was that you were missing. So it sounds like a lot of that you're doing like postseason wise. Is that yes? Correct? Yep. Okay. How about then, like a new property? Um, that you've maybe never been on before maybe just driving by and holy crap there's a big buck out there never been on that property before uh and now you got to dive in and, and learn it yeah so if if that happens and it has that's actually how i killed that this year uh right away i pretty much will pull over to the side of the road and pull up onyx or google maps and look at the area right away to say okay it's it's this time of night this thing's right here where could he have possibly come from? And then I try finding um, that transition edge of hardwoods where it gets into marsh more, and then trying to see on the map where potential bedding spots would be. From there, I usually will look at more when I get home, and then I'll usually look at it while I'm on break, of course, at work the next day. And then when I, if I want to hunt it that following night, I got, a, I got a couple ideas in my head, and I will walk in right away and just get on the, the marsh edge and start walking until I find the best-looking sign. Now, it might be rubs from last year yet if it's early season or whatnot, but looking at trails, I try to find – I'm pretty big on tracks. Um, trails, you can usually tell if a big buck's been using it because it's usually kind of knocked down on the sides from a big rack. But that would be that would be my typical game plan if I was driving around, saw a big buck, didn't know the area, it's time to figure it out on the fly kind of thing. Yeah, so that's gonna be more on the fly. You're truly gonna like you're gonna grab your bow and bring your bow and you're hunting and scouting at the same time essentially. Yep. Right. For sure, for sure. <laughs> and even if even if that hunt doesn't work out that night. Maybe I'll come back in a couple of weeks and check it out again, see what's changed, see if I missed something. 
Um, I'll almost always for sure put that on the list to check in spring with the intentions of hunting it that upcoming season because there's a reason he was there. So try to figure it out in advance. And then when you get there the next time, you can do a speed scout on the way in if you already know where he might have come from and then determine if there's any fresh sign in there or not. Sure. That makes that makes a lot of sense. How about if you saw like this time of year, like we're a couple weeks away or a month away from the season and you get a sighting of a big buck. And again, it's a property you've never been in before. Are you going to dive in there like in this preseason summertime and try to figure something out? Or are you going to just kind of jot that down? Like, Hey, there was a big buck here. Um, and then do the kind of hunt or scout while you hunt later on once the season comes. Yeah. So as we're getting into this middle of August, I start to be, I start to get kind of uh, more careful about walking around. Uh, if I see something right now, I'll definitely look at the maps again. And if there's, if there's a buffer zone of just hardwoods or like fields, crop fields, whatever, I'll go walk those now because I'm not too worried about it. There's the deer will come to that, but it's usually going to be well after dark by the time they're there anyways. They're used to smelling human scent in those areas because that's where everyone pretty much hunts is up in the hardwoods and on field edges. So, uh, but like if I did that right now, one thing I definitely would be looking at is if, if there is a field edge or just trails and high ground, I would definitely be looking for tracks and trying to find the big tracks. But I wouldn't dive in any deeper than that. That's where I would stop and then I would make mental notes and kind of look at the maps more and then uh, go from there. Something I've I've come to see over the years, and it's a little off topic, but it kind of relates, is I've really noticed, a, I call it an August shift, where it's like you're getting patterns of these bachelor groups of bucks and does and everything else, but it's like you got them on a pattern, and then they're getting close to shedding velvet, and they kind of start disappearing for a day or two. And uh, I have this going on right now where there was consistently there's, I'll just say he's really big. And then he had his buddy that's probably a three-year-old. He would, the little one would go in front of the camera about five minutes before the big one, every single night for three weeks straight. And this camera is probably only 50 yards from the beds. So it's like the big, big boy sends his scout out first. Well, now they started being sporadic and they still hang out, but you only see them every couple of days. And I don't know, I don't know what that is. I mean, obviously I think they change their patterns a little bit once they shed velvet. And it seems like sometimes then they'll go, they'll go to the real um, remote bedding after that. And I don't know if it's because they feel safer because they're feeling vulnerable from shedding velvet and it, it, something's different with their testosterone level. I might be thinking way too much into it, but it seems like a couple of days after that, they kind of get back into their summer groove of what you've been seeing until hunting pressure starts. And then it's like they go back to where they were just hiding for a while. So when I see stuff this time of year, I don't necessarily think this is where they're going to be come September. But I keep I keep note of it 
because they're, they're there and they might show back up for a little bit if they get dumped out of somewhere else. I don't know if that makes sense, but. No, that makes a ton of sense. And I, I feel like we have really started to key in and, and see a very similar type deal. Um, we're hunting hills and stuff a lot of the time. Um, yep. But we'll, we'll have bucks on, like you said, bachelor group patterns all the way through August. And then it's right around that give or take that, that velvet shedding and some of them will just completely disappear and they're, they're gone. <laughs> completely moved to a, a different property. Um, some of them will break up and then, but those patterns definitely change right in that time. And unfortunately that's typically about one week before the season. So then you're kind yep. of scrambling to get, try to get back on whatever their new pattern is in the, in that last week before the season kicks off. Um, but yeah, a lot of times those August patterns that you're like, oh my God, I'm going to, you know, this is going to be a slam dunk, no doubt. They end up changing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we've definitely seen a, a very, very similar thing. So. Um, yeah, and like you said, sometimes, sometimes once they shed, they definitely are gone. I don't know if it's a buck that's played the game a couple years and now he knows when, when that happens that he's got a, hide from more than coyotes or whatnot, but it definitely, definitely happens that way too. <laughs> usually I like that because that usually means they're leaving the private and come coming to play in the public where it's nasty and all. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I can remember a couple of years ago, three, four years ago, we had a super consistent 10 point on camera all of August, all of July, all of August, early September, velvet shed, and he was gone. We're like, thing get hit by a car or like what and here a neighbor two ridges over shot him like two weeks later and he was like oh yeah i had him on camera ever since the season started and like that buck flat out relocated to i don't know if he had a summer range and then an obvious different young fall but it was just bizarre it was how far away it was um and how he was with us all summer and then just gone Yep. yeah it definitely happens and it i've seen it happen too you know later in september when leaves and stuff start dying and the brush and grass is dying down because they're losing shade where they had been the last three four months now now they go somewhere else again and it's like oh okay now we gotta track him down again and then you find out he was shot a mile away it's like oh that's where he went mm -hmm. so then when it comes to in-season scouting when you're scouting on the fly while you're hunting what are what do you think are some of the subtle or detailed things that you're looking for or keying in on that maybe you know, the average Joe is just blowing right past those things and not even seeing them. I know you talked about tracks, um, maybe some of the, how the cattails are shaved off at a certain height might indicate like a big buck walking down the path. Uh, what are some of those detailed oriented things like that that you're looking for? Yeah, so I would say as far as on the hunter standpoint, um, everyone wants to see the visual stuff, right? I mean, people, have a real hard time walking past a big scrape or a, a line of big rubs because it does look pretty awesome. The problem with that is that's usually made at night and it's it's pretty late. Now, hill country is a little different and private's a little different farm ground where they're more comfortable in that terrain. But it seems like the public, even not so much the marshes, just the public in general, the rubs and scrapes and stuff right on the field edge, it's nice to take inventory because you know something's around. 
but you got to take it to the next level and find where the sign is that matters. And like we said with the cattails, how they're knocked down and tracks. Um, something else I've noticed is in the in the dogwood and the brush and stuff. Sometimes you'll, if you really look, you'll see the nicks on the on the bark and stuff from antlers just hitting it as they walk past. Um, other things to think of. I mean, I kind of take into consideration what the acorn crop is in certain patches of woods because sometimes they're they're raining here and 200 yards away they're not. Well, they're going to come to those first. So it's trying to pick out the closest oak trees to that cattail edge and then seeing where they've been eating them and just looking for deer crap and stuff like that. Are there any food sources really in these marshes that the deer are eating on? Like maybe like you still like the red, I think it's red osier dogwood or whatever it's yep. called. Um, any others that they're? They, I've watched them eat everything from, oh boy, the red brush for sure. They really key on that in winter when the buds are still there. But I, I mean, they, they love poison ivy. They love stinging nettles. Uh, that jewel weed with the little orange flowers on it's a pretty big one for them. Uh, there's some, I think it's called duckweed or something like that. It's an arrowhead shaped, more of a like a lily pad type plant, but I know they like that. So there's, there's that's that's why it takes them so long to get up to hardwoods and stuff like that is because they have so much browse between their bedding and where they're going to that they can take the time and they can browse for an hour or two as they're walking up towards the acorns or towards the soybeans or alfalfa. So I guess something I really do look for is browsing. And sometimes it's kind of subtle. Sometimes it it looks like someone was in there with a weed whacker, but I don't know if that's something a lot of guys really look at, but it definitely, it can definitely point you in the right direction. Even even if there's only a certain area of it, that might be because they're eating on that trail out. That's interesting. That's good stuff. Um, how much of your scouting involves, like, looking at other hunters or hunting pressure? Like, where are the other people pushing in on these properties? Is that a big part of it or not? Don't really care. Yeah, yes and no. And I guess it kind of depends on the size of the property. Um, the bigger the property, not always the better as as far as it comes to getting away from people. But, I mean, over the years, you kind of learn where, where 90 to 95% of the guys are going to hunt, so you just avoid it. But there's definitely guys that are hunting the right stuff now, and if they're doing it right, you will you can barely notice it until until you walk up there and see where they maybe gutted something out or you see them themselves. But um there's areas there's a lot of lazy people that leave their tree stands up that nod on some public you can but i know most of the ones i hunt you cannot leave stands and stuff up but seeing that it's like well i'll just avoid that area or make sure i come in a different way so the deer aren't expecting me because they're used to that guy always being right there but I mean, seeing trail cameras and stuff, too, starting to see a lot of tap cams everywhere now. They're good cameras, but, um, I mean, if I start seeing a lot of those, 
no, maybe, maybe I got to rethink this. Maybe I don't just eliminate this spot, but I got to think of a different way to come at it than anyone else is going to. So it used to be discouraging when I was still my learning. Well, I'm always learning yet, but when I was really starting to get into it, it seemed like other guys walking past or you're walking past guys a lot. The more each season I get into this, the less other hunter interaction I have, unless I'm walking out late and have to walk past someone or go around them. But sure, to ever do anything on your end to uh, divert attention per se, um, with you know you've built a reputation as a guy that can get it done. Uh, maybe people start recognizing your vehicle or whatever. Do you have to? do different things or get dropped off or you ever have to worry about that? <laughs> yeah, I do all sorts of stuff. I think I've had like eight different beater vehicles over the last 10 years. And uh, everyone, you know, every once in a while I'll get a, hey, I saw your truck. I know where you're hunting. I said, just because my truck's there doesn't mean I was there. So a lot of times I'll park somewhere and bike a half mile and then go in or sure. get dropped off. I mean, I, I hate to make it sound like I'm trying to be that sneaky, but I do. No, you got after a while, but. And then some some of it's not just because of my vehicle or who I am. Some of it, I mean, some not every spot is two miles in the marsh. Some of them um, are 50 yards off the marsh or off the road. So there's times where I don't want anyone even knowing that. And I'll walk in street clothes and then just take off my sweatshirt. And then wait for the car to go past and jump in. So, sure, sure. Did you ever do anything crazy like, uh, like I know Dan Info talked about what he, what did he, have? what was his bumper sticker like? I break for raccoons or something. Oh, yep. Yeah, I had the, I had the cat wagon for a while. It was a little, uh, Ford Focus hatchback. It was actually a really good hunt rig. So I took out the back seats and there was almost as much room in that as my, my one ton pickup with a cap, but I. I went to the store and got a girly steering wheel cover and put beads in the rear view mirror. And uh, I'm not a Packers fan, so I put Packers stickers on it. And, uh, like the family of a, a girl with some cats, the stick figure family and stuff like that. So I've, I've definitely dabbled in the, the uh, tomfoolery as far as that goes. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so I kind of want to run you through a scenario here. Um, let's say you've located a specific buck that you know you want to go after. Maybe he's even the biggest one you've ever found. And let's say it's a spot that you know pretty well. You've got a decent idea of where like some of the betting areas are going to be and whatever. What's your approach going to be in that situation? Are you going to be like super aggressive right away, go in there, or is there more of a process behind it? Do you take your time with it, wait for a cold front? What's that process like? The more I do this, the more I learn that the times where I decided to not be aggressive hurt me worse than just going in right away. Um, so like this year, there's a buck I'm very interested in, and I didn't want to run the risk of blowing the spot up with cameras and stuff because I think he's in a pretty safe spot right now where if he doesn't get blown out of there, he's probably going to be in there for a little bit come season. So 
doing a lot of uh, spotlighting at like one in the morning to four in the morning. The other day I got up at two thirty to shine for about two hours before going to work. Uh, a lot of that, a lot of glassing, um, looking at maps. Even though I know the spots, I look at the maps all the time. So I'm just waiting for the first time I can get in there. Now, <clears throat> I almost want the wind to be wrong for me, but I, I want it to be just off where he feels like he's really safe. So I'm pretty much waiting on that. If if opening day comes in the wind, I cannot pull it off. Then I'll wait, and hopefully the next day it's like that. But I will definitely go right at his throat the first chance I can get. And that's usually early season. That's usually setting up within 60 yards of where I know that the beds are from scouting. Sure. So it sounds like the majority works great. If it doesn't, oh, well, hopefully – Hopefully, I already know the next spot he might go to, and hopefully it's the spot I can hunt. The biggest thing that makes it hard early season, we talked about it before, is when they're grouped up yet. So so say he's in there, but he's got another buck or two with him that are probably going to come past first, and they're going to probably be bedded closer to the way I'm coming from. I really got to be careful of that, and I got to keep it in to consideration where I'm going to set up so that they can get past me without knowing I was there. And it's tough sometimes because coming in, I usually walk the deer trails, but if I know it's one they're going to come out and I'm pretty sure there's other deer, I'm almost going to have to um, bushwhack it adjacent to that trail. So at least they're going to still smell me eventually, but hopefully they're far enough past where the big guy is already on his feet and it's too late by the time they come running back. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I'm wondering with that, that same scenario there, are there any factors besides the wind? Like if there's hunter pressure in the area that, you know, might deter you from being super aggressive. Cause I know the wind in the direction the wind is blowing is really like, a main factor just in the conversation I've had with you here, like for what really drives your hunting style, but is there anything else that yeah. might kind of deter you from going after that monster that you find right away? Um, I mean, especially early season when, when it probably sticks out more if a guy is hunting a certain spot than say mid to late October, I'll probably use more of the park and uh, bike to the spot more or something like that. But if, if I know there's other hunters in the area, I'll probably think of how I'm going to come in differently too. And maybe, uh, I mean, I've used kayaks and stuff before. Um, I guess it doesn't change, change it a whole lot for me, but it might just give me a little detour. Sure. So if there's, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just wondering, like, if there was, um, a certain spot where you knew they were really finding like a destination ag field, but it was going to be losing its value. Either it's going to be harvested, or the beans are turning brown. And they don't want to hit it as much. Um, do you sort of anticipate things like that, and then 
try to adjust to their movement? I do. So if that if that's going to be the situation, I gotta already have planned what is the next food source and. Sometimes it does totally change the game and they relocate. Sometimes they stay where they are and they're going to take a different route. And sometimes land features kind of narrow the way they're going to take, which really helps um, because they'll still take the easiest path for them. But I don't think they leave immediately. I think they're still in the area if a crop dies off or it's harvested. I don't think it's like overnight switch for them, but I think it happens really fast. It's just being being the step ahead, knowing what the potential next food source is going to be and kind of looking at it from how are they going to get there and how soon is it going to be before they relocate and then where are they going to go from there. And that's, that's not something you you figure out overnight either i mean some spots you figure out over five years and others are you're taking a gamble at it because you don't even know the spot but the worst thing you can do is just not try it so you might as well try taking a something and either it works or it doesn't you'll learn something either way right absolutely yeah that makes a ton of sense so with your sort of a aggressive approach then uh, obviously it's going to happen you're going to end up spooking deer here and there but if you spook like a, a big one your target buck the one you're after if you, if you end up spooking him and you watch him run off is he pretty much like gone for good or is he going to stick around pretty close and maybe give you another chance well you hear a lot of people talk about the bump and dump kind of thing and i think it depends on where you're at i think Central part of Wisconsin, I think the deer are pretty touchy. You bump them once, I'm almost banking on them going to, they're relocating to the next best bedding area. Um, in Missouri and Iowa, when I've hunted it, you can, you can kick the same, same three bucks out of the same spot every day. They just keep coming back. Because as long as they run away from you and just get out of the immediate danger, I think then they just go back to their spot. But with the hunting pressure around here, I think they definitely they definitely leave, I think, more times than not. That's usually what I plan on. Um, unless something tells me differently, if I see something scouting or maybe later that night or driving around and see that he's in the same area, then I'll probably give it a crack again as soon as I can. If the wind's good the next night, I'll be back in there the next night. Because the longer, longer he has to think about it, I think the more he thinks it's time to get out of there. But along with that, I, I usually try to have 40 to 50 different spots lined up for each year for when that does happen. Because if you do bump him and he leaves and you, and you really don't know where he went next or the wind's wrong for that potential next spot the next week, you got to go somewhere else. So, I mean... You learn a lot by failure, so the more spots you can get in and the more times you screw up, the more times it'll start making sense and you'll start seeing patterns of what they do. So with all those spots, do you tend to have one deer mainly that you're going after at any given time in a year, or are there multiple deers, deer I should say, that you're tracking 
as the year goes on. Yeah, it's it's usually multiple deer. Most years I don't even really target a specific buck. I just, I mean, if I have like 5,000 waypoints in Onyx just for Wisconsin, they're all spread out over, I think, 21 different counties. So some days I like just going for a ride and trying something different. And some days it's a, hey, I haven't hunted here in a while, but it's usually pretty good. And over the years, you can weed some spots out. They were only good one year because that specific buck, that's what he liked. And ever since he's been gone, nothing good is in here kind of thing. But I usually try to keep everything fresh. Nice. I want to jump back to the spooking, bu- or spooking a deer question real quick. Um, you care much if you spook other deer, um, which of course always happens right um yep. but like if you're going in there and you know a big one's in there and maybe you spooked some other deer whether it's on the way in on the way out while you were hunting but you know for a fact or you at least did not visually see that you spooked the big one do you care about that will you dive right back in there do you how do you feel like that affects him or the area yeah so i mean it kind of goes two ways if it if it happens on the way in now, obviously, I'm not running in there and screaming and shouting and trying to get the other deer up and moving. But if it does happen, I guess I'm not too worried about it. Because like I said, if they don't smell you or really get a good look at you, maybe they just think you were a coyote or something, they run back. And after a little while, they, they calm down and they might even get the target buck on his feet earlier. But either way, if you spook something on the way out, or after that evening and your scent is there so that they're going to know you were right in their bedroom and i think that definitely puts them on high alert after that so it's almost it's almost like you got one one shot to make it happen and hopefully you can make it happen if not be prepared to uh move on to the next spot gotcha gotcha so speaking of scent there um and I think I kind of know the answer just based off some of your other answers, but do you do a, give any approach to scent control or take any measures that way? Um, I think I know how you're going to answer this, but. Um. Yeah, they really like the smell of uh, diesel <laughs> and construction dust. Um, no, I pretty much, half the time I'm wearing the same clothes I wore to work, maybe I'll put a camo or a plaid shirt on. That's about it. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're in that tight to them, they know you were there. Anyways, they're gonna smell you. So the only the only consideration I take is the wind. Really, I used to I used to be spend two hundred bucks on scent killer gear and stuff. I never got into scent lock and the clothing and the ozonics and stuff. But it seemed like the less the less I started caring about my clothes the the better I was getting at hunting because I really had to watch what I was doing and that's what really mattered. Make sure you're walking in the right way and playing the wind right and stuff like that. And I, I mean, I joke about it all the time, but if the if the scent control stuff gives you a sense of confidence, then by all means use it. But I think I think it gives a lot of people a false sense of confidence too, and they think they can get away with more than they do because. A lot of times they probably don't even see the deer that smelt them. They just never made it into them because they did smell them from a ways off and just went a different way around them. 
I agree with you. Good answer all the way around there. Um, so yeah, no no specific camel pattern or nothing. Trying to blend in with the cattails or duck camel or no. work. Throw something on and get back in there as fast as you can, huh? Because you're kind of out of time. time yep, I got my 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 favorite uh, killing sweatshirt is an old Mad Dog cattail max four i think it was from high school it's faded it's almost purple now so i'm sure i'm sure <laughs> when they see me i'm just glowing but usually it's too late <laughs> that and uh blue jeans or whatever so do you use any any like gear that would be different from someone who hunts out of a tree stand or a blind specifically like are you wearing waders out there at all yeah it depends on the area uh like i said it, it can be pretty uncomfortable some spots some spots you almost have to stand in shin knee deep water the whole time to be in the right spot to kill one um i would say hip hip boots are pretty big for me um knee boots to me personally really aren't that great because most of the time they're getting filled with water anyway so then i'll just end up wearing tennis shoes or my normal uh lace-up leather boots i wear elk hunting because either way i'm gonna get wet so i might as well just get wet right away kind of thing but um other than that i've used wooden step ladders before uh like six and eight foot ones just because they're quieter a fiberglass one would probably be better, but I think they make more noise with the aluminum steps. So I've used them here and there. Um, my favorite gadget is the kneeling pad that's about $1.99 in the garden section at Fleet Farm. Just something to kneel, kneel on and not uh, killing your knees the whole time. I would say nine times out of ten, I'm usually kneeling on the ground, though. And that little little pad folds up pretty nice, and you can put it in your side pocket. Yeah, that's pretty smart. That's something that a lot of tree stand guys are definitely not going to have with them when they go out there. But I would think it would take probably one sit out in the marsh when you're on your knees there for hours on end before you realize that you need to <laughs> find something a little bit more yeah. comfy. Yeah, it's crazy what that little one-inch cheap piece of foam will do for comfort um i like to get in spots as early as i can now with that said there's if i get home from work at five and it's dark at six fifteen, i'm still going even though i might only have five minutes to hunt by the time i'm in there but um when i get in early a lot of times i might not get right to the kill spot i might be 10 yards away from it and some more brush in case does or something get up early but a lot of times i i'll just stand for an hour hour and a half and then uh crouch down once the sun's starting to look like it's going to come down gotcha do you have to do do you have to do anything to combat i've got to imagine the mosquitoes are awful in there yeah they're bad do you spray or a thermosol or just take it i don't know what it is we we kind of joke about it it's like these mosquitoes now have evolved, and the thermosol doesn't do much for them anymore. But uh, I spray with bug spray, and then those those little citronella bracelets you can buy, like in the checkout lane at Menards for ninety cents, they're pink and purple and stuff. I usually put a couple of those on. I'll put one around each wrist and one around my neck, and they they actually help quite a bit. 
Huh. It looks it looks pretty silly, but whatever works. Yeah, whatever works to combat those. Looks but like a lot of times, a lot of times it's miserable, and if it's if I know it's going to be miserable, I'll just wear a sweatshirt with my hood up, even though it's ninety. And it's either get eaten alive or sit there and sweat. So, I guess pick your poison when it comes to that. Right. So I know we got a ton of rain um, across pretty much most of the state the other day, but in general, it's been a relatively dry year. Do you think that's going to affect things out in the marsh? Yeah, that's a pretty good point you bring up because the last, I don't know, five, six years have been pretty wet falls, and I hate to say it now and jinx it, but I, I'm really thinking this year is going to be dry in most of the swamps and marshes around here, and that definitely does change things because they can, they're not as limited to what trails they're taking. Uh, there'll be more bedding opportunities just because of higher, drier cattails. Um, yeah, it, it definitely does change. That is something I monitor quite a bit because I can tell, hey, this creek is this high right now. Well, I already know that stuff's going to be underwater this fall, so it doesn't doesn't pay to hunt that, or it's really going to isolate it, like isolate the deer to those couple humps, so it's going to make it better. So in general, I would say drought years make it tougher to pinpoint them but i think there's more deer in the cattails and um trying to think what year it was it was a year or two ago where it was really wet and i noticed right off the bat opening weekend that there was not good deer sign where there there should be and i took a night off which i really do but i took a night off and drove around and sure enough all the deer were in the private crop fields already before the sun was down so they they definitely moved out of the, the marsh because they there was no bedding for them. Yeah, it's crazy how that can fluctuate or, or change from year to year. Um, yeah. I think we have like two more questions for you. Then we'll, then we'll let you go for the night. But sure. Um, hey, with a, with a, with your elk hunt coming up, um, and the way you uh, hunt these marshes, um, getting back in there, no easy task. I've got to imagine you got to be in some type of physical shape. You can't just uh, be the standard Mr. Wisconsin Joe beer gut type of hunter. You, what what do you do to get to? What are you doing? It sounded like a it sounded like you're going on a rucking mission tonight. But you doing anything special to get yourself in shape for every hunting season that uh, you can handle all these conditions? Yeah, I mean even. Well, going on forward, I, I plan on being in the mountains every year for elk, but uh, even the years that I won't, wouldn't be out west before deer, I would definitely start uh, start running more, start lifting more. Because um, you, you definitely learn real fast, even if you're not dragging a deer out in the cattails, you learn that you're not as tough as you thought you were pretty quick. But... Um, <laughs> Every little bit of exercise helps. I don't quite have as big of a, a beer gut as I normally do right now, so I'd, I'd like to lose about 10 more pounds yet. I don't think I have the time to do it. But, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not uh, ride the four-wheeler in and then a 200-yard walk down the fire lane kind of deal. So <laughs> I, think that, I think that does deter a lot of people from it too, which 
either way. I mean, it's good for me, but it's also, I'd like to see more people hunting too, but the more, the more you can prepare, the less it will suck. That's what I'll say. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, all right, before we go, one last one. Um, I don't want to jinx you, but if you had to call your shot on what week you're going to get it done or what scenario um, on a big white tail this fall, like what's it going to be? If, the, if everything is right and the wind's right, I'm going to say it'll be opening night and I'm going to have to let a buck or two go past first. I'm, I'm shooting to be done by the first week in October again, like last year. We'll see if that happens. It was nice because last year once I shot my Wisconsin buck, I did a lot of lot of in-season scouting I normally wouldn't where I actually walked in bedding areas and was I was blowing deer out on purpose to see where they were that time of year specifically. So it'd be nice to get it done, but some years it's hunting till January 10th. So either way, it's all good. If I take out here early, I'll go to a different state. Gotcha. Like it. I love the, the early season as well. So I'm uh, I'm in the boat with you. I'm hoping I uh, can get on a pattern and opening weekend or, or two, maybe the second weekend, uh, but hopefully by October 1st and then have some wiggle room to play, whether it's scouting some new properties or going out of state for a hunt. Uh, that would be ideal. So Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> yeah, well, um, I think we'll we'll let you get out of here this was a great episode and a great conversation i i learned so much just from this and and i want to thank you for joining us tonight and, and taking the time this was this was really awesome yeah no problem thanks for having me on i got something to tell people is it might look pretty intimidating but don't be afraid of failure because that's when you're gonna learn so hopefully you guys have some luck this year and uh safe successful season yeah thanks a lot yeah thanks for coming on jordan good luck in your uh your elk hunt in colorado coming up and then your whitetail season as well is there any you on any social platforms or you know you kind of roll with the hunting beast crew a little bit is there any way where people if they want to watch more of your stuff or or find you they can look you up um yeah, I guess I, I, I'm on Facebook and, uh, excuse me, Instagram. If you looked up Marsh Buster, that's probably where you'd find me. I don't really post any videos or stuff, but I uh, I usually do a pretty good job of taking people throughout my season, keeping people entertained. So, Yeah, it's a good deal. Well, we'll be, uh, we'll be watching along as well. and uh, Looking forward to seeing what you put on the ground this fall. Right on. We can only hope. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks again. And uh, to everybody listening, uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, that really helps us out a ton. And we look forward to bringing you lots of good content yet this fall. So thanks, everybody. And we'll see you guys next time.